from the Milton Metz Studio in the Radio TV building at Indiana University. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. The United States is the only developed country where the number of women dying during childbirth is on the rise. And Indiana's mortality rate for mothers during childbirth is twice the national average. We'll talk about those topics and more on today's program. We have three guests with us in the studio. Georgianne Catalona is a maternal child health advocate. She's been involved in this issue for many years in many different ways and has been on the show before. Thank you, Georgianne. Uh, Jesse Ucatel is a certified doula, breastfeeding, and birth educator with Crowning Achievement Birth Services. And Laura McCloskey is director of Indiana University Center for Research on Health Disparities and a professor of applied health sciences. We'll also be joined in about 15 minutes by Dr. Mary Abernathy, an OBGYN and chair of the state's Maternal Mortality Review Committee. If you want to join us on the program to talk about this important issue, please give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the program online, news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So welcome to all three of you, and we'll be uh, having Dr. Abernathy later. This is a really uh, interesting and important issue, both for the nation and for uh, the the state. So um, Laura, Laura McCloskey, I'd like for you to kind of give us the overview of this issue and, and why, why are we where we are? And that's a great big question. So. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, it is. But I think just to put the statistics you mentioned in, in context, uh, we actually are sort of different in our pattern now of a rising increase a rise in um, maternal mortality from most of the rest of the world. So Bill and Melinda Gates um, completed a study of 188 countries, most of them, of course, developing countries, and almost all of them showed really precipitous drops in maternal mortality. They're still higher than we are uh, as a, in the basic number of deaths, but they are showing a real um, trend towards improvement. And so it is a very disturbing trend, and but the United States is is almost like fifty different countries. You know, each state uh, and its their governing policies uh, can influence health outcomes in a n- number of spheres, and and you see big state differences uh, in in the United States. So uh, Vermont has a, a maternal mortality rate of about seven per hundred thousand. Massachusetts is about the same. Um, uh, Louisiana is 58, uh, and and we're actually uh, Indiana is very high. It's it's the third highest in the in the country, um, and so there have been different um, hypotheses put forward that might have to do with state policy, for example, that that relate to it. And, and one possibility, of course, is access to um, Affordable Care Act Medicaid. Uh, one thing I think most, probably all, um, obstetricians would. Agree, agree to, and, and most people in, in um, uh, the general field of uh, women's health and birth, is, is that prenatal care is really important. And they do find that the women who have fewer prenatal visits may have more adverse outcomes, uh, both of the infant and their own health. And, and so prenatal care is definitely affected by uh, insurance policies. So when Medicaid's expanded in some states, as it was in Kentucky, uh, you find a, a, a huge drop, actually, in maternal mortality rate. Um, in Tennessee, it was not expanded, and you find, you know, a, a very high rate of maternal mortality. So and the, the, these changes, of course, just happened in the last few years. Indiana did expand its Medicaid, so you'd think that there would be uh, some some benefit to that. But it hasn't maybe shown up yet, but it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other um, issues with uh, southern states in particular – as opposed to northern, has to do with urban versus rural uh, populations. And that's just a kind of difference in the political economies and and where people live. And hospitals now, uh, to stay, um, you know, basically solvent, want to stay in in urban 
uh, met- in metropolitan areas. They have to for the level of population to sustain the hospital. And so people in rural populations sometimes can't get to the hospital, often in time, and, and that women. And so that's, that's a, a huge issue as well. And that's going to show sort of more and more of this um, divergence between um, – uh, different regions and states as well. Okay. So, Jesse and Georgianne, mm-hmm. I've asked for both of your sort of overview of this from, you know, your sure. perspectives. So, Georgianne, you want to go first? Um, sure. I'd mm-hmm. be happy to. Um, I think um, part of what really strikes me when I look at the data and the information is how many of these deaths are occurring outside of the hospital setting. So I think the image we have is of a dramatic event that occurs in the hospital during the birth or in the immediate postpartum when she's there. And in fact, greater than 80% of these deaths are occurring outside of the hospital setting. That says to me that there are issues with, as you said, prenatal care and how we're monitoring and supporting pregnant women, but also really importantly, how we're supporting postpartum women. And I think a lot of these things occur outside of that. And that says to me the community has some work to do that would perhaps support these women better. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. In the mm-hmm. um, midwifery model of care, mm-hmm. how the follow-ups with pregnant women, who just re- or women who have recently delivered anyways, it's they come and visit you within the first day or two after because you're released soon after you're given, you know, midwives leave after you give birth or you go home from the birth center. They follow up with you a few days after, and then one to two weeks after, and then a couple weeks after that, and then they're always at your beck and call. You know, if you're you're concerned about an issue, you contact them, and they will come and assess you Mm -hmm. because they know that that's a critical time. And and I think that that could be a model that hospitals could adopt to help reduce this issue because you're there for a day or two after you have a baby, even if it's a catastrophic event, sometimes maybe three or four, but then you're sent on your way home and you have a six-week postpartum follow-up visit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you get a a brief sheet that says, if you have these issues, call us. Sometimes you get a nurse on the line who's like, well, it might not be an issue. And then you write it off and then something bad happens. Yeah. If, if I may pick up on something, actually, Laura, that you mentioned, which I think is really important, talking about that regional divide, that northern and southern thing. I don't know if anyone else happened to see the Indiana Institute for Working Families just published their economic report. And they the kind of the lead on that is Indiana is now more like a southern state than a northern state. And I think if you look at our infant mortality rate and our maternal mortality rate, we're really southern. We're not northern. Mm-hmm. So when we, we're talking about mm-hmm. hospitalizations, I mean, could you, I, I guess if you sort of had that charted out, would you be able to see a difference in terms of how many days we keep women in the hospital afterwards? Yeah. Can we show that rising with the infant well, mortality rate? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. But I think we're talking about, well, I mean, in the old days, women used to stay in the hospital for like right. a week, right? right? And you were really there and you were held and you were taken care of, I mean, metaphorically held and taken care of. But we're talking about the difference between leaving after two days or four days. That's not, I mean, we're not, this is not a, I mean, in terms of what the practice is now, whether it's a vaginal or a cesarean birth. The stats, I happen to have them in um, in front of me because I did a little research before coming. Um, but the distribution of pregnancy-related deaths by timing of death in relation to the pregnancy. So 38% occur while pregnant. 45% occur within 42 days, right? So for maternal death, we're going a year out, okay. as, right? And then 18% are 43 days to a year. Okay, so, and this is the um, report from the nine maternal mortality review committees. There are nine states that pooled their experiences with their review committees and pulled that together. I think we are joined by uh, Dr. Mary Abernathy, who's uh, OBGYN and chair of the state's maternal mortality review committee. Hi. Hi. Thanks for being here with us today. We appreciate it. Uh, so we're we're talking. I, I think you've heard maybe a little bit of the program. So we're just we're we're trying to get an overview of this issue from different guests' perspective and from your okay. you know from your role with the Maternal Mortality Review Committee. I mean, what's your work about? So we have just started. The legislation was just passed this uh, past uh, kind of 
legislative season and then starting in July we're able to kind of evaluate and examine the maternal deaths. So we've got a very multidisciplinary group uh, of uh, physicians, nurses, midwives, uh, sociologists, psychiatrists, geneticists, pathologists uh, from around the state, and we will meet quarterly, and we're going to uh, be reviewing the maternal deaths that happen within Indiana. And our, our goal and our hope is that if we can identify uh, some trends, then we can, you know, possibly create action items so that we could potentially decrease the risk of, you know, a similar situation happening in the future. And what's been found, and I think uh, someone was quoting the nine maternal mortality review committee report that came out from the CDC, is that about 50 to 60 percent of the maternal deaths are preventable. And so our goal and our hope is that we can identify those things that are common, uh, that are preventable, and then work through the different hospitals, the different birthing centers, to try to decrease, you know, future maternal mortalities or significantly reduce our rate. What happens now if you are seeing an OBGYN and you have you have the baby? I know there are follow-ups almost immediately with the baby, but what about the mother? Well, historically, it's been within six weeks. So Dr. Haywood Brown, who many of us around the state probably remember, he is the most recent president of ACOG, and one of his main goals was to actually make sure that all women are seen within three weeks after delivery, and then again, uh, you know, before six weeks, before the end of their normal kind of maternity leave, six or eight weeks, depending on, you know, how long they're going to take off. Um, so he really wanted to, to shorten that time frame between when women, you know, leave the hospital post-delivery to when they're seen to initially to three weeks. Now, we do like to see if women have had a history of preeclampsia or high blood pressure, or if there's some other maternal condition, we've tried to always see them back. Or if they've had a cesarean section, we try to you know look at that incision and see how they're doing. Um, but even normal women should probably be seen a little bit sooner than what historically we have, and that was actually uh, kind of a, a big push from ACOG this past year. What, what is ACOG? So, I'm sorry. ACOG okay. is the American College of Obstetricians okay. and Gynecologists. All, right. so all the OBGYNs uh, usually are a member of ACOG, and they're kind of the the body that creates different guidelines for us to follow. Okay. But if, if somebody doesn't have insurance then are they are they left going to urgent care or the ER and just do no. they have a problem? Well usually somebody has delivered them. So even if they have emergency Medicaid or, or have Medicaid, the person the person or the group or the entity that did the delivery, it's part of the delivery process. Uh, to see them postpartum. Now, if they had absolutely no insurance, uh, then we try to get them hooked up with someone, you know, who can see them. And a, a lot of hospital systems um, will have an, a, a clinic for indigent patients or patients without insurance. Um, so hopefully they'll at least get them seen uh, in that clinic. If you want to join us on the program today, we are talking about... Uh maternal mortality during during birth and we uh, have four great guests with us so they can answer all your questions 812-855-0811 in bloomington 1-877-285-9348 outside of the bloomington area you can also send questions to the program at news at indianapublicmedia.org or on twitter at noon edition so I want to ask about this issue of uh, one of the statistics I saw is that 99% of all maternal deaths occur in developing countries. Is that a uh, – yeah. why, why is that? Is that a matter of who can report and who doesn't report or is that – No. Okay. No, it's real. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> it, it's just no, a I mean, shocking statistic. Well, you have to think, though, of our own country 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, my great-grandmother and great-great-grandmother both died in childbirth before they were 30. So mm-hmm. – and they – and, you know, they had the typical risk factors in some ways. They had a lot of children. And so parity, lot, having a lot of babies, of course, increases your risk of, of dying in childbirth. Um, and
And so in a lot of other countries, you do see women who are having many births. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're starting very young. So in some places, uh, there's very young teenage marriage and, and, and early birth, and that's very high-risk group. So if they're under 16, under mm-hmm. 15, especially, um, and that's less common, much less common in the developed world. Mm-hmm. And, of course, parity is very low. Um, Italy has the lowest birth rate in the world, I think, and and has for a long time. Um, the United States has a low birth weight, not as low actually as as Scandinavia. So you know, so um, that that's one difference. And then um, there are a lot of rural in many of these countries. The population is largely rural as opposed to the U.S. You know, or or mm-hmm. Europe. So. Yeah. Um, so they're not close to a hospital at all. Right. And transportation yeah. is dangerous and long, and they may die in transport, which mm-hmm. is actually yeah. one of the big dangers in Africa, where I used to, where I was working. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and bleeding, of course. Yes, so hemorrhaging you know. during, during transport is mm-hmm. one of the ma- major causes of death in Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, when you think outside of the developed world, then you think access to care and you think access to the appropriate technology right. to really be able to take care of women. Whereas in the United States, we're more concerned about overuse of interventions and um, different issues with lack of access to care. So uneven distribution of resources is also an issue here. It's just a little. It's a little different. Yeah, yeah you know that's a really interesting point because while that's right, so C sections mm-hmm. when they're needed aren't available for it's some. Uh, so a rural woman in in many of these other parts of the world, however, and you want them to be available. Obviously, you want yes. to expand that availability. In the U.S., I think thirty percent. You probably know the figure, mm-hmm. but a lot of uh, uh, births are C section now, and they carry their own risk. So it's about three times more likely. Uh, mortality risk with a C-section. It's still low compared right. to these other countries, but mm-hmm. but it's Absolutely. a new technology, so it's more or less not really and new. But then it increases with every cesarean, too. If the mom has more right. C-sections, mm-hmm. then she has an increased risk of complications with each subsequent C-section That's that right. she has, too. That's right. Okay. Yeah. We have a phone call, so let's go to, to Hattie on the phone. Hattie? Hi. Thanks for taking my question. Sure. So I'm curious about... Uh, either Monroe County specifically, or perhaps we can speak more to the state as a whole, um, who in our state or in our county is most at risk for deaths or uh, morbidity-related uh, issues as a result of the childbearing year? All right. Who wants to... So I can, ad- I can uh, yeah. start it, but okay, uh, other people probably can chime in better. Um, so the people that we have found that are most at risk, especially nowadays, um, are people that have underlying cardiomyopathy or a cardiac condition. In fact, one, one of the things that's come out from California, a state that's been doing evaluation for maternal mortality in, in Illinois, is that cardiomyopathy and cardiac pre-existing cardiac conditions um, can be extremely associated with that. Uh, unfortunately, we we have you know the the other thing that pe- women die from is is hemorrhage or death due you know due to the placenta not um, you know, separating properly, uh, and so frequently you know you'll use ultrasounds to try to determine that if a woman has what we call a morbidly adherent placenta or the placenta accreta, uh, then she's at risk, and many times those patients would be referred to, you know, a large center uh, where you have multi-specialties that can be available during her delivery to try to decrease the risk of, uh, you know, maternal mortality during that. Uh, any woman who has high blood pressure, either during the pregnancy or it develops intrapartum, meaning during labor, or even postpartum, they're at risk for that. And that kind of encompasses the the majority of those deaths that we've seen uh, in California, Illinois, and some of the states that, you know, have reported their maternal mortality review data. So I'm going to tackle this from the um, social determinants of health perspective. So I would say, Hattie, that the women who are most at risk in our state are African-American women, because we know that African-American women 
um, have um, live with toxic stress and weathering of um, the impact of uh, racism in this country and that that is part of what uh, puts them at risk. Uh, I think the most telling thing is the work of like James Collins and some other researchers who point out that your socioeconomic status, if you're African-American, does not protect you from risk of maternal morbidity or death or of or of having your baby die. So there was a while back, uh, the UU Church, the Unitarian Church here, showed this kind of startling and very uh, powerful documentary. And I learned there that in New York City, African-American women die at a rate 12 times that of white women. 12 times. It's, you know, it's more everywhere. But I was like, oh, my, Wow. Uh, that's really, really startling. So I think that's a big piece of it. And then the other thing, let's not forget that Consumer Reports recently did something on cesarean rate in this country, and they pointed out that what's the risk factor for the cesarean? The facility you deliver in. So that speaks to the hospital policy issues and the practices within a hospital, which is why it's so great to have this Maternal Mortality Review Committee, because they'll be able to give feedback to the doctors and the hospitals to say, hey, you know, let's look at what's going on here. And that's fabulous. And we'll actually probably have accurate numbers, mm-hmm. which and is also an issue. Laura, is this, in your research, what have you found? Yeah, so um, I, I completely uh, concur with that, agree with that. Um, I was also, I thought that um, Hattie was asking, too, about the age of the mother. I'm not sure. Was she asking about that? No. Just who's at risk. Oh, okay. Well, women over, should, yeah, women, yeah. women over 30 and... and um, <laughs> Uh, so Dr. Abernathy, I'm sure, uh, would agree with that. But women like over 35, women over 30, is basically age is, is one of the markers. So those conditions of cardiomyopathy and hypertension are, are going to be more frequent in a woman who's in her late 30s or something than in, in her mid-20s. But, um, but at any rate, yeah, there are um, huge um, racial differences uh, throughout the United States and, and definitely in – uh, Indiana, where the rate of maternal mortality here is about, I think, three times higher for um, African Americans than for white Americans in Indiana. And also that is very parallel to infant mortality rates. So um, they're not quite, the difference isn't quite as high, but it's it's pretty, pretty high. So, mm-hmm. so maybe about double the rate for African American um, infants here uh, are likely to die. Mm-hmm. And and again, those rates, as I said before, vary by state. And so when we're looking at those state differences, you know, I mean, it's it's important to look at what are the sort of societal systemic um, mm-hmm. contributions um, to access to care is one area, but also um, uh, the racial climate is probably another um, that is contributing. So when they talk about the stress that African-Americans may experience from racism in particular – uh, which is, by the way, unique um, to some degree in, in Europe and the United States. So I lived in Africa, and, you know, of course, black Africans don't have that kind of stress. You know, they're, everybody's, Afri- you know, basically black African, or maybe 85% in South Africa. So um, so that is not one of their stressors. They have other, plenty of others, but that's not one of them. And um, so it has been hypothesized that, that that explains maybe a whole sort of underlying a current of um, health disparities, including maternal, um, maternal and child health. We are uh, halfway through the program, so we're going to have to take a short break. I want to thank Hattie for her call and tell our other caller that we'll get to you right after the break is over. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org.
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about uh, Indiana's mortality rate for mothers during childbirth, which is twice the national average, and, and the fact that the United States is the only developed country where the numbers of women dying during childbirth is on the rise. Uh, we have four guests, three in the studio, one joining us by phone. Georgian Catalona is here. She is maternal chi- a maternal child health advocate. Uh, Jesse Ucatel is with us. She's a certified doula and a breastfeeding and birth educator with Crowning Achievement Birth Services. Laura McCloskey is director of the Indiana University Center for Research on Health Disparities and a professor of applied health sciences. And Dr. Mary Abernathy is an OBGYN and chair of the state's Maternal Mortality Review Committee. Uh, so, if you want to join us, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join us, uh, send us questions, news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, let's go to... Well, can, if we can. Yeah, yeah, uh, sure. George Ann was talking in the break. We were give, oh, we've yeah. been giving all these statistics about... Um, deaths, but if we could talk a little bit about what you were, you were calling near misses yeah. and how that number is actually even yeah. quite a bit higher. Sure. Yeah. So um, I think it's really interesting that the number of women who almost died is much larger than, of course, the women who do die, but the degree to which it's much larger. So it's fifty to 65,000 women a year who are near misses. And I think what to help put, kind of put that into context um, a little bit, it, that's actually comparable to the number of people in the U.S. who are dying from the opioid crisis. So if we look at the number in 2016, approximately 60,000 people died in the U.S. from the opioid crisis. So if you get that number in your head and you think, wow, that's a lot of people dying from something, well, we've got that many almost dying from childbirth-related causes. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay. Uh, we'll give you the phone numbers again, but we seem to be having a little bit of problem with phones now. We'll try to get them fixed. If you want to send us a question, though, news at indianapublicmedia.org. Yeah. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, I want to talk about this Indiana disparity a little bit yeah, more sure. because the national numbers, it sounds like they're bad, but Indiana's mm-hmm. are twice as bad. So, again, I'll, I'll turn first to, mm-hmm. to Dr. Laura McCluskey and ask for some kind of explanation? Uh, Well, I think, I mean, again, if you look at sort of the general state policies, there's not a high, there has not been a high, probably high enough investment in maternal and child health. Um, Medicaid expansion, as I mentioned, which is so critical to prenatal care as well as, of course, to um, hospital care, but especially prenatal, because um, women won't go into they'll, – they'll go to a hospital when they're delivering a baby if they have to, but they won't, they won't go for prenatal unless they have insurance. And so um, that has been a very recent uh, development here, and um, it still may not be wide enough in its reach. Uh, you know, um, One of the things that's important to recognize, too, is that Indiana, on many metrics of health – um, it is not uh, especially looking really healthy. <laughs> um, for you know, it has uh, it has a high obesity rate. Uh, we have an opioid addiction problem here that's quite that's quite high per capita. You know, in terms of the population. I mean, we have many he- underlying health problems. And the truth is, if you have a system that's ready for the health problems, that's taking care of its population, you are going to make a difference. You are going to make a dent in infant and maternal mortality because, um, all, you know, uh, it's basically rising tide lifts all boats. So if the health of the population of that state is, you know, is better, you're going to have, you're going to have a, a better outcomes in, in, um, in these sensitive areas. And it's important to, just to recognize, you know, that maternal mortality and infant mortality, they're viewed internationally as a very important metric of social development, so to speak, of a, a, a government's investment in the population because they are the most vul- these are some of the most vulnerable people in the you know in in that country and um, so it's considered a very sensitive metric for uh, for the basic health of a nation yeah I would con- I think that's such a great point and also because when a baby is born 
the context of that, uh, how things are start get a start, that launches that person on a health trajectory for the rest of their lives. And for women, that is um, it is part of the life cycle of your health that you you know you may give birth and that what happens there stays with you for the rest of your life. So I think that's a great point about what an important metric it is Mm -hmm. for evaluating health in general. Yeah, definitely. We were talking before just about um, some of the factors that might contribute to someone. So I'm wondering just like socially, is there any data on this just in terms of the support structure someone might have? And again, um, in Africa, it seems like families are more help each other out. But in here, we're we're a bit more isolated, maybe. Georgia and I know um, we have a lot of experience in this area. I feel like I staked my whole working career, and uh, and for Jesse too. I mean, when you're a doula, that's what's that's what you're really doing is trying to help people get integrated into services. Definitely making sure that you um, you hold space and make sure that a mother's concerns are being heard when they're giving birth, because you know a mom might have a fear. What if I start bleeding? You know, what if this happens? And that might be something in the back of their head that they're afraid to voice to their doctor because they're like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to seem silly if I, you know, talk about this risk that's small to me. But, you know, is it really that small in America, which is scary to think about? And it's a legitimate concern. And being there to help a mom express that and relieve some of the stress that might come along with those fears can actually help improve her birth outcomes, too. And it also, when you're in a social group of some kind, other parents, other mothers, other dads, other family members, then you have a sense of what's normal. And I think that's part of what we're missing for so many people in our culture. They have no idea what's normal in birth. And so parents really don't have a way to say, oh, yeah, they told me this is what to expect, and I know from all the other women in my family, all the other people who have given birth, this is the range of normal. And and also getting the support to speak up. Yeah, I think the isolation that you describe is, is quite real in our culture, and um, it probably accounts, at least in part, for the high rates of postpartum depression that we see as well. So women go home, they're supposed to start cleaning the house again, <laughs> taking care of the other children, and, you know, there's there's very little support. And um, I knew an anthropologist who did research among the Inuit in Alaska, and the practice there is once a woman, when a woman gives birth, she's with other women folk, but she's with other women folk for two weeks. They stay, they take care of everything. They, you know, mm-hmm. she's she's treated like a queen, and um, and they don't have hardly any postpartum depression there. So mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that way in China as well, you know, they have yeah. that resting period where family right. takes care, and then yeah. here in the United States, it's it's like. With the elderly, too, you know, so many people go to nursing homes and don't get that care at home. New mothers have the same issue. I had that issue when I had my daughter. We moved away, and I had no immediate family. We didn't really have any friends in the area, and I was a full-time student, and my husband worked, you know, 12-hour work shift, swing shift back and forth, and we were absolutely at our own mercy trying to raise our daughter, and that was why I started delving into the birth work. And I think one of the most satisfying things I do is postpartum care. So, you know, I go to a mother's house and I help her out with those things. You know, the laundry needs to get done right away. Well, I help her with that. You know, I let her have a nap, you know, and help feed baby and things like that, which, you know, or if she seems like she might have some symptoms of postpartum depression, you sit there and you discuss those things with her. Yeah. And say you might want to follow up with your provider. Yeah. It's All right, I think I think our phones are working again. We have a couple of people waiting, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you please to identify yourself first before you ask your question. Hello. Yes, go ahead. What's What's your name, hi. please? Hi. Um, my name is Nishani. I'm an addiction psychiatrist here in Bloomington. Uh-huh. I'm driving, so I want to apologize if there's any interference. So um, I see a lot of patients, obviously, uh, mid opioid crisis pregnant. I prescribe them buprenorphine. My concern, I've had a couple of cases of this where um, they've missed three appointments, and some of the local practice is that if you've missed three OB appointments, you are dismissed from the practice. Mm-hmm. And this woman was 34 weeks along. We got a health coach for her to try to, number one, actually speak to the office and see if they would take her back um, and, and call around other offices and no one would take her. Now, this population, they, their phones change all the time. They run out of minutes. 
you know, they're living, they're couch surfing. They don't have a steady place to stay. And, you know, she just waited till she, her water broke, went into the hospital, delivered, you know, and had no postnatal care. We did find her primary care after a couple of months she was able to get in. But, you know, in psychiatry, we are actually not allowed to abandon patients, may I say, like in, in that way of you didn't show, you can't, you're not allowed, allowed back. And I'm wondering, and this is not just with OB practices, but this is also with primary care, how patients are fired for no-shows without further investigation into why this is. This is an indigent population. They have lack of, you know, resources, et cetera, and, and how this contributes to this, you know, maternal mortality, opioid crisis, all the things that we were discussing. Thank yeah. you. All right. Uh, Dr. Abernathy, do you want to uh, respond to that? Um, I would agree. I have seen uh, similar findings. I think part of it is um, the practice, you know, the, the business of running a practice where if you have no-shows you and you're paying the bills to try to keep the lights on, you know, people who are very, very, very focused on that. And I, I agree. It's unfortunate. Uh, it is, you know, concerning. I think having an advocate like a doula certainly does help. Uh, and it gives somebody, you know, that social support. And I, I would agree with all that's been said before is uh, I think a lot of the social determinants of health are what we're dealing with as far as infant mortality and, and some maternal mortality. And we really just need to be, you know, more aware of it and be, you know, our, our brother's keeper, so to speak. Um, but I, I can see it from from both perspectives. If you know you're trying to keep the lights on and you have a fifty percent show rate, you can't tell the electric company I'm I'm only going to be able to pay fifty percent of my bill. Uh, so it's it's a hard a hard place to be, um, and that's where I think sometimes our social services, our doulas, you know, our other people can try to help navigate and run interference into that. But it, it's it's difficult. All right, Mashani, thank you. Thank you very much for your call. Thank you. All right, we have another caller on the line. Uh, Tina is next. Tina? Hi. Um, I am wondering uh, what you guys can tell everyone here about the differences in maternal deaths during birth when the mother is giving birth under the care of a midwife um, at home or at a hospital with a midwife when she is under the care of um, a, an OBGYN, um, obviously at a hospital at that point. All right. Well, so, I was going to say, I haven't seen that data per se. I've seen data regarding um, infant mortality, but I haven't seen data regarding care at home versus care in an institution uh, for maternal deaths. Maybe someone else has, but I haven't seen it for the U.S. Jesse? I haven't seen any real direct statistical things, but when you look at the broad picture that, you know, 94, at least 94 percent of mothers give birth in hospitals and the majority of those women use an obstetrician and we have the current maternal mortality rate that we do, that the rates are most likely higher among obstetricians, births in hospitals and things like that. Because And that also plays a role with midwifery care because midwives have to screen their patients. They have to take the healthiest, most low-risk mothers because they need to make sure that their practice is taken care of and that their patients are being taken care of if they have an issue that needs to be seen by a medical doctor. So rates would typically tend to be lower with a midwife if you were having a birth in a birth center or in a hospital with a midwife or even at home. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, let, me fo- let me follow up just quickly. So, with uh, a midwife, um, you would typically, uh, if there were, if it was a high risk patient, you mm-hmm. would then go and transfer find a, care. Right. Yes, yeah. even transfer even care. during labor, that mm-hmm. can happen. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Tina. Did you have another question, uh, Tina? Yeah, I just I had another um, part to my question. Um, is it so? When what would be the 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 risk, like, if it, is it a higher risk? I've read that it is several times. Is a, a higher risk to the mortality of the mother um, to go and have the baby at after hours? Say, uh, women who give birth um, Monday through Friday, nine to five, have a significantly lower risk of death during childbirth 
or promptly mm-hmm. afterwards than someone who um, has their baby in the evening or even on a weekend when a doctor would have to come in on call and things like that. So I can't address that particular one. I have not seen that. There is definitely data on higher induction rates and cesarean rates dependent on the the day of the week. The tricky thing with looking at mortality, and I'm definitely not an epidemiologist, so this is I'm going out on a limb here, but we're talking about really big population numbers that you have to look at because the incidence, while it is alarming, is still pretty low. So, for example, you'd have to look over time to see those patterns, and I don't know who has looked at that. So maybe, Laura, you can address that? Well, I... I think Dr. Abernathy may have some intuition mm-hmm. about it, but I don't. I've never seen any research on that, so that might just be one of that might just yeah. be a commonly held belief that's probably not justified. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think it's true. Yeah, I haven't ever seen anything. Yeah, no, I don't think that's in true. general surgery. Perhaps it is. I, I actually just had my appendix removed emergently <laughs> two weeks ago, and the surgeon. I was in there at three o'clock in the morning, and he's like, "Trust me, it's statistically better for you if we wait until morning to do your surgery." <laughs> and well, I was like, "Well, <laughs> yeah, better outcome than yeah. I can wait a few hours. Just you know, give me a little bit more painkiller, yes, whatever." <laughs> Yeah. Well. All right, Tina, anything else we can help you with? Um, Yeah. I mean, I guess that's kind of my point is that, you know, we know that um, interventions and, um, you know, emergency Mm C-sections are, they do run, you know, higher mortality risk, you know, risk than if a mother is, you know, having a healthy birth, a healthy pregnancy the entire time. Um, so if something does go wrong and she is giving birth in a hospital under the care of an obstetrician, um, you know, like you said, there, there's a higher risk after hours and on the weekends of um, those interventions and those cesarean sections. So wouldn't that in itself just be putting her at higher risk? No, because it's a self-selection. So she's having the C-section because there's a blockage or there's, a, you know, a uh, a, a breach birth or a danger to her or child. So she's right away into a higher risk category. So you can't really say for sure that people are, it's it's the C-section that's causing a high uh, maternal mortality rate because um, there are many factors that are contributing to the C-section that may be saving a lot of women's lives as well as the babies. So that's, you know, that's just, it's, it's more complicated than, than just direct comparison. All right. I think, uh, yeah, I think we're going to move on. But, Tina, thank you for all your questions. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. If you have any any questions or comments, give us a call at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. News at indianapublicmedia.org is where you can email us questions, and Twitter is at Noon Edition. So, Laura, I want to follow up with something that you were saying at the beginning of the program when you were just talking about how it varies so much from state to state. So I would like to know what Vermont is doing well that we could be looking at here. Yeah, well, Vermont has for a long time, um, at least 20 years, had basically Medicaid for all. So they have, everyone has health insurance coverage there. And so prenatal care is essentially free for any woman. They also, by the way, have a large rural poor population. So um, Vermont is largely rural. So, you know, um, that it's, so, but they, I, I'm not exactly sure what programs they might have that do outreach to those areas. I'm sure they do. I don't know a lot about it. But Massachusetts also has some um, mostly urban but metropolitan but but some some rural and they also have a very low uh, maternal mortality rate one of the lowest in the country and california so california is an incredibly diverse you know state with diverse ethnically and racially and and um, economically and rural versus metropolitan area and um, they have a low you know but they've also had um, very sort of aggressive prenatal care and um, you know, that sort of uh, in California as well. So these are so kind of social services. Also, California has very sort of extensive social services um, throughout the state, um, probably a more developed social service network than most other states in the country. Um, I just know that because I used to work in child maltreatment, and they have uh, a lot of child maltreatment detection sort of um, programs there. So, so um 
anyways, yeah, I think I, I, I don't I, I don't know. I haven't done research on Vermont or Massachusetts exactly, but I know that certainly that's part of the safety net. Um, yeah. Georgiana, I wanted to follow up of with course. you and ask about yeah. you know your your work in this area has gone sure. on in various ways for many years. Yeah. Where's there, where's there been a lot of progress made, and, and you know what, what do you think is the pro- most oh. pressing need today? Well, I mean, what's the, what's the area that you're most concerned about? Today? Oh, that's a great question, and I feel like we've done a lot of two steps forward, one step back. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've made progress locally with issues around perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. I think there's a lot more sophisticated conversation about that. People are more plugged in. Um, I think people are more aware of the need for social connection in Monroe County. I think we have a good network of social services. And while we struggle with a lot of things because we serve such a broad area, but really I've just been kind of looking upstream all the time. Now, I feel like the, to have the biggest population impact, we really need to go upstream. So I'm going to offer you um, some a research-based bit of information, and that is for every dollar that you raise the minimum wage, you improve infant mortality by 4%. Okay? That's really going upstream. That's saying let's improve the lives of people. What I'm curious about is what is that mechanism for maternal mortality and morbidity? What is it that we could do as a state in terms of our policies that would lift up and support all the moms? Um, I was thinking when you were talking, Jesse, about, um, you know, your experiences and the work as a doula about how even well-resourced moms and dads struggle and have trouble accessing things. So it's like, what if we gave everyone paid family leave? Yeah, and also, you know, um, insurance and Medicaid coverage for doulas and postpartum doulas to help families. I mean, if we really want to expand Medicaid coverage, don't have a work requirement with it. Well, we do have we do have a very good person to talk about what what the state can yeah. do with this. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Mary Abernathy, uh, OBGYN and the chair of the state's maternal mortality review committee. I mean, you you are empowered now to really look at the the maternal mortality um, issue. Um, can you give us kind of a timetable of your committee's work and and you know what you what you hope to find out? So our first meeting was in August, and that's where the CDC actually sent out representatives, and we were able to kind of go through a, a mock case, and um, it was it was a good learning experience for us. So our next one will be in November. I think it's November the 13th, and we will be uh, starting to evaluate cases from back in 2016. Um, by the way, we, we did recently, so we set up a new website. Uh, and a new reporting mechanism, and unfortunately, uh, we realized that it worked. We actually uh, recently got a case uh, of a maternal mortality in Indiana, so we'll start investigating those. Now, the maternal mortality review committees um, usually run where they investigate um, usually about a year behind, Uh, so we wanted to um, at least start and kind of get our feet wet with those cases from 2016, and we're hoping to, from those, create uh, ideas and action plans and trends. And one of the things that California has really been good at, and they've actually reduced their maternal mortality by about 55%, uh, because they've created action plans where they've been able to implement um, bundles or kind of Mm -hmm. care pathways, if you will. You know, when a mother starts having a hemorrhage, you need to do this, 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 and this order. And so it really gives people kind of um, ideas to implement and guidelines to kind of really help focus. So, you know, when you're in an emergency situation, what is it I need to do first? And we've, you know, we've found that our friends in aviation, you know, have been much better at this in the past than we have been. So we're hoping to kind of target in and hone in on those things uh, that we need to do to establish, you know, better care. Mm-hmm. Jesse, could you talk a little bit about the March for Moms or the Rally for Birth? Is that what it is? Oh, yes. Okay. Uh, so um, this is the fourth year that I have um, through Improving Birth, which is a national nonprofit that's based out of California. Uh, I, do, I run like a small local group. Um, there's little pockets all over the country. And every year they have um, what's called a Rally to Improve Birth. This last year it was 
um, pocketed with March for Moms when they did the March on Mother's Day. Uh, I decided to do my rally old-fashioned style on Labor Day, pun intended, because I'm used <laughs> to doing that. And it's, uh, it's something that I've had a deep passion for is, you know, helping educate local moms on, you know, their choices in childbirth, their um, risks and benefits to different things, uh, how to speak to your care provider about these things, because a lot of moms feel like they don't want to approach a professional and question them and they don't want to feel like they're undermining, you know, the person that is caring for them. And it can be a difficult dance for somebody to learn how to communicate in that way. And also how to, um, you know, try to communicate with professionals outside of the hospitals and things like that and try to make things a little bit better and say, hey, you know, maybe this could help moms, you know, feel more satisfied with their experiences mm-hmm. and things like that. We have Elaine on the phone for a quick comment, Elaine. Hi, yes, uh, my name is Elaine Hernandez and I am a medical sociologist with training in health demography. I really appreciate all the comments I've been able to touch base and uh, especially picking up on what Jordan was saying, moving upstream, the research that we know suggests that if we look at the state level inequalities, we can see that those are associated with both infant, maternal, and then other mortality rates and morbidity rates within the states. So one way to specifically address that, rather than relying on the patients or the providers, is to make clinic level or systems level changes. And we have evidence to suggest that if we make those changes at the universal level, in meaning that everybody follows those changes, that can reduce some of those inequalities and it can reduce some of the um, the inequalities that we see in infant mortality rates All right. down the road. And we're starting to see this thank in you. California a little bit. Elaine, thank you. Thank you. thanks so much for the comment. We are out of time. So I want to thank Georgianne, Jesse, Laura, and Dr. Mary Abernethy, and for producer Patrick McGurr, engineer Mike Pashkash, and co-host Sarah Whitmire. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thank you for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org.